Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Welcome to Brew Crime. I'm Mike. And I'm Beck. And I'm Nina. All right. This episode, we are going to be doing Valentine's Crimes, or is it Valentine's Day Crimes? Mm. Column A, column B. Both. Valentine's Crimes. <laughs> so we've picked three stories that took place in and around Valentine's Day. So we're going to start with Beck's story this episode. Yep. All right. So give us a hint of what case you're covering. Is it Valentine's Day themed? No. And by no, I mean yes. (laughs) Bright-eyed and super-failed, his eyes couldn't be more freakishly wide open, but Stephen Grant still couldn't see the multitude of stupid mistakes he was making. And the beer that I chose for this one is Duplicitous. And I'm going to let Mike talk about it. It's from Nickelbrook Brewing Company, and they are in Burlington, Ontario. What? So this is a uh, 4% alcohol beer. It's a duplicitous citra dry hopped sour. All right. Crack it. It's excitable. Yes, it's got a fairly high carbonation level. It's just mildly cloudy yellow color. Could be a slightly hazy lager almost by the look. It's got kind of a citrusy, like a light citrusy nose. It's fairly subdued, a bit of graininess. But it's not a it's not a big aroma. Flavor's a lot bigger than the aroma is. Really like lemon puckery, citrus, tartness. Still got kind of a grain backbone in it. It's like a, a really nice, very standard dry hopped sour. I like it. Yeah. There might actually be a hint of some tropical fruits in there too. Oh, I'm it is sure. so sour. It is quite sour, yeah. Holy bananas. <laughs> it's because it's tart and sour that you're Mm. Tongue is going crazy. <laughs> no, it's all the goose pimples. <laughs> Holy. I, don't I mean, it's, it's, it's yummy, but I was not expecting that. It's good. Tara Lynn Distramp was born June 28, 1972. While she was attending Michigan State University, she met Stephen Grant. He wasn't attending the university, though, because he dropped out. 
He repeatedly asked her out, but she politely let him know that she had a boyfriend back home, so they remained friends. Later that same year, Tara had to fly back home because her grandma had passed away. Before the service started, who should show up but Stephen? Not weird at all. No, of course not, yeah. Tara had no idea he was coming, and the only time they spent together while he was there was with Tara's boyfriend. So awkward. Yeah. Yeah. When she got back to town, uh, she called Stephen and told him that she loved him. All of this, of course, is according to Stephen, though, so just take it for what it's worth. Yeah, of course. A bit of grain of salt. Yeah. Yeah, like A pound of salt. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Seems unlikely to me, but they did eventually get married in September of 1996. The family welcomed a daughter in November of 2000 and then a son in November of 2002. Tara climbed the corporate ladder. Uh, This involved many sacrifices, but I'd imagine that the biggest one was that she lived and worked in Puerto Rico Monday to Friday and only got to see her family on the weekends when she would fly home to Macomb County, Michigan. Hmm. That's got to be rough. I know. On February 14th, 2007, Stephen called the Macomb County Sheriff's Office to report that his wife had been missing since February 9th. According to Stephen, he hadn't called them sooner because it wasn't the first time that Tara had disappeared. He claimed he hadn't seen or heard from her since that night, uh, the night of February 9th, when he overheard Tara on the phone and that she had said, quote, I'll meet you at the end of the driveway, end quote. He then saw her get into a dark colored car, which drove off. So he didn't know what color it was or anything. It was dark colored. Yeah. It was some kind of car. Okay, but so. I'd be like, uh, honey, where are you going? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What is happening? I literally only see you on the weekends. Why are you leaving? Yeah, usually if you're happily married, you'd be sticking around on the weekends. Yeah, then. spend every minute you can yeah. with the kids. Or at least just say where the hell you're going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. You're allowed to be me time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But you would talk to your partner before just buggering off. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where are you going to a dark colored car at the end of the driveway. Not suspicious at all. Yeah. But I have a feeling this is going to be a bunch of bullshit. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of according to him. So the next day, Stephen was arrested during a traffic stop for driving with a suspended license. Mm. He claims that this was only done so that the police could question him further about Tara, but the police have denied the accusation. In the following two weeks, Stephen spent a lot more time in the media than he did helping the police with their investigation. He used his on-screen time to accuse police of harassment and to beg anyone with information to come forward. Of course, he had all the information already because, as most of you know, it's almost always the husband. Mm -hmm. Stephen cried his alligator tears, but the police were already on to him. On March 2nd, 2007, police served a search warrant for Stephen's home. In a plastic bin, hidden in the garage, they found Tara's torso. Wow. Unfortunately, after letting the police in, but before they made this discovery, Stephen had made a run for it in an unsuspecting friend's truck. So the manhunt only lasted a couple of days. Police were tracking Stephen's cell phone and located him 280 miles away in Emmett County. That's about 450 kilometers. He called his sister and they were able to use GPS to track him. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, from there, he was pursued by local, state, and federal authorities, including the U.S. Coast Guard helicopter crew. He was eventually picked up in Michigan's Wilderness State Park. Hmm. It's always nice to go to the park. <laughs> yes. Well, when they picked him up, uh, he was definitely worse for wear. He was only wearing pants, a shirt, and socks. He was suffering from frostbite. Pants, shirts, and socks. So he has the essentials. We're good. He's not wearing shoes or a jacket. But you got socks. So it's still a barrier between you and the ground. It's March in Michigan. Okay, which tells me nothing. It's literally freezing. Okay. Colder than, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I retract my earlier statement. He's an idiot. Well, yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> uh, he's, he was suffering from minor frostbite and hypothermia. So good planning. Mm-hmm. He was quickly airlifted to the hospital where he confessed that on February 9th, he had had a fight with Tara. He claimed that the argument became physical when Tara belittled him and began slapping him. The fight culminated when he strangled her to death. He then took her to a family-owned tool and dye shop where he dismembered her. Jesus. I mean, even if that was true, it's just that they were having a fight. Like, just what a bullshit response. Yeah. So leave, I dismembered her. Leave the house. Then. Yeah. Like, yeah. meet someone at the end of the driveway and leave the house. Yeah. He initially hid the body parts in Stony Creek Metro Park in nearby Shelby Township, but when he heard the police were going to search the area, he went back and relocated her torso to a much better hiding spot. A plastic bank in his own garage. Duh. That yeah, makes I mean, sense. Come on, right? Yeah, do that. that. Keep it there and know it's safe mm-hmm. from harm. Because everyone knows that plastic bags are indestructible and that they make their contents invisible. Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, good. Super move, Stephen. Stephen was transported to Macomb County after he was released from Northern Michigan Hospital. He was formally charged on March 6, 2007 with murder in the first degree that is premeditated. So that could bring life in prison. As well as disinterment and or mutilation of a dead body, which could bring uh, 10 years in prison or a $5,000 fine or both. I want both. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen's confession was released to the public on April 13th, 2007. This included his entire conversation with police as well as his written confession. Further to, to the murder and dismemberment of Tara, Stephen confessed to having an affair with the family's 19-year-old au pair, Verena Dierks of Germany. I'm sure I pronounced that German last name wrong. Let me see it. Let me see the spelling. Oh, no, I would have said it like that, too. Sweet. Tara's family is hoping to keep all of this information from her kids until they are adults. And Tara's sister has filed a wrongful death suit against Stephen as well. Things were really tough for Tara's family, but they weren't exactly great for Stephen's family either. Uh, his father, William Allen Grant, had been trying to seek some sort of visitation with his grandchildren, but it was not going well. On June 13, 2008, William was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Yeah, I can't imagine what that would have been like for him, you know, for mm -hmm. that his son did such a horrible thing. And now on, on top of it, and he knew nothing about it, but on top of it now, he doesn't get to see his grandkids. Yeah, yeah. for sure. It Yeah. I don't know. It's all horrible. Mm -hmm. uh, Stephen was found guilty of murder in the second degree on December 21st, 2007, and he was sentenced to 50 to 80 years on February 21st, 2008. 
He lost his final appeal on March 30th, 2010. Good. So while Sweet Sweet Justice is a lovely ending, I have a cherry on top. Ooh, I like cherries. After Stephen was arrested, there was a newscaster reporting on the story, and when Stephen's mugshot was displayed, she, she tries to continue to do the report, but she's clearly stifling giggles because of how ridiculous he looks. Like, just his normal <laughs> Oh my face. god, I can't wait to see it. Uh, like, he's all wild-eyed, but also, like, that's just how his face looks. It's he's, not he's even unfortunate about, looking. Uh, it's, yeah. Um, so I'm going to provide a link to that, um, as well as some of the photos of him on the website. Nice. Um, show us right now. So here's one of him in the trial. Okay, it's not too bad. No, that one, he doesn't have like the a, crazy eyes, but it does look like he's pooping. He almost looks like Neville Longbottom. <laughs> Val <What>? Kilmer. <laughs> oh, Val Kilmer. Um, Val Kilmer in the uh, Top Gun days. That's his normal face with the crazy eyes. Yeah. He it's literally looks like he's seen some shit. Is <laughs> yeah. he violence? He caused the shit, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's him now, fat and disgusting Less in prison. Yeah. I mean, he was obviously already disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can bring up that video if you guys want to see it. Turning to news making headlines around America this morning in Michigan. Police have arrested a man who's suspected of chopping up his wife. Michigan police say suspect Stephen Grant was captured in Michigan's Wilderness State Park and airlifted to a hospital. The area is more than 400 miles from Grant's suburban Detroit home. The 37-year-old man is accused in the death of his wife, Terrilyn Grant. Jesus. A torso and body parts. Of who is believed to be the mother of two were found this weekend in and near the Grant home. Oh, <laughs> I feel so bad for the reporter and the family because it's so insensitive to be laughing during that, but you can't oh, yeah. help it because my God, his face! Like, yeah, look it's a that face video of mothers up, could love. On, maybe <laughs> we're gonna have that on our uh, sources and watch that video. Wow. Yeah, he's unfortunate looking, ridiculous looking. Anyway, that's. That's my story. Um, so I would say the only good thing that came out of it uh, is that um, Tara Lynn's family has started uh, a grant for to send uh, kids to school, like mm-hmm. to help them put themselves through school. So at least they're still trying to do something good. That's mm-hmm. good, yeah. Yeah. It's really sad. What a piece of shit. Yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. I'm understanding your title more even now, bright-eyed. Yeah, bright-eyed mm. and super failed. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. He's an idiot. Yeah. He yes, is. yes, he is. All righty, well, we'll get ready for the next one then. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So the title of my story is Fuck the Gay Panic. Being that this episode is about Valentine's Day, I thought it only right to cover a case of a poor young kid that lost their life just because of a bigot they had a crush on. The beer I chose for this is Hella Cool. It's a orange and chocolate milk stout 
from uh, Twin Sales in collaboration with High Point Liquor Store in Vancouver. And it's 6% alcohol. And I took this only because the kid involved in the store is a pretty cool kid. He had some troubles, but it's a cool kid. So I wanted to kind of yeah, yeah. pick a beer kind of honoring him. Also, her, them. adorable penguin. Yes. With a cool little toque on and sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Wow. Smells like dessert. Yeah, so it's super, super dark. So dark. It's nice as dark brown as head on it. Mike, so. Yes, exactly. It it's smells like, the, like it's chocolate. It's the opposite of the one that I had. It's yeah. the opposite of what I like, I think. <laughs> it's got the chocolate notes. It's got some roast on the nose. It's a little bit of orange, like it says. It's sort of semi-sweet on the nose. Like, it's not... doesn't smell like milk chocolate, per se. As for the flavor, it's definitely like a bitter dark chocolate. A little bit of orange, a little bit of roastiness and bitterness. Maybe some resin. It's not like a sweet dessert beer. No. But I, I like it, personally. Yeah, it is a bit creamy, too. Maybe even a bit of, like, they. some people say, like, tobacco flavor. I wouldn't recommend going from um, Duplicitous, yeah. which is the beer pairing that I had with my story, to this one, because they're so different, and I'm sure that the one that you've chosen yeah. would be even better if I didn't have such a tart, sour feeling on my tongue. Yeah. Nina loves this one. You guys should <laughs> see your face. Is there any more in the can? Yes. I'm disappointed it's you really guys good. made me try that. <laughs> no, it's really tasty. On January 13th, 1995, Lawrence Forbes King was born in Ventura, California. His birth parents were not stable as his father abandoned the mother, as sadly happens more than society likes to admit. To add to the problem, Lawrence's mother was a drug addict and could not deal with having a small child, even if she wanted to. Because of the fact that she was unable to support a small child, he was put up for adoption at a very young age. He was adopted by Gregory and Don King, and this should have been happily ever after, but sadly it was not. Sounds like this may have not been the idyllic household that he deserved, as all small children deserve. Sadly, on top of everything, he was diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder. This is characterized as, per Wikipedia, as a condition in which an infant or young child does not form a secure, healthy, emotional bond with his or her primary caretakers, parental figures. Could you, what, what is it called again? React, reactic? Reactive attachment disorder. Interesting. I've never heard of that before. No, I hadn't either. When you said it, I actually thought it meant the opposite. Mm. Like where they're extremely attached. attached. Yeah, no. Children with RAD often have trouble managing their emotions. They struggle to form meaningful connections with other people. He would also be diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactive disorder and would be prescribed medication for it. He would act out as a small child, and this would lead to him repeating the first grade. I can relate a little to this as I had such bad dyslexia, I had trouble in school, and I was held back also in the first grade. And look how far you've come. (laughs) Exactly. You're reading and everything. Mm -hmm. You're a famous podcaster. I'm reading unless you listen to the unedited episode. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then you're just doing your best. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pat on the back. By the third grade, things would get a lot worse for Lawrence, unfortunately. He was a more feminine child, and by the age of 10, he had come out openly as gay to his fellow students. When he was 10? 10. Yeah. So, like, what a fucking brave kid. That's yeah. such yeah. a young age. It is really young. 
So I was just a snot-nosed brat worried about the dumbest things when I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, his home life was not good. His adoptive family was abusive, and there were 22 abuse complaints that were never followed up on. What the hell? Jeez. At the age of only 12, he would be placed on probation for theft. That theft was food out of his fucking adoptive parents' fridge, according to an HBO documentary called Valentine Road. Why? How do you steal food out of your fucking fridge? Your, your own house? fridge. That's ridiculous. Yes. Like, what kind of judge let that? Oh, my God. But if that was actually a thing, like, if mm-hmm. that could be a thing, you know when people would lose so much weight? Like, hold on, I have to go to jail if I eat right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on November 2007, he would finally leave this abusive situation and make his way to Casa Pacifica. This was a group home and treatment center for children. Luckily for Lawrence, also known as Larry, he finally found a group of friends at E.O. Green Junior High School that accepted him and didn't care about his differences in grade 7. Good. These friends were a group of girls that liked him for who he was regardless that if he was a bit different than the other kids in school. So when he came back from winter break in January 2008, he had changed up his look. He had been at his new home for a time, and one of the new male friends at the home said he was finally happy at Casa Pacific. They would receive clothing donations there, and he began to gravitate towards the girls' clothing. I would like to mention also that his friend looked like a tough, like big Hispanic gangster with lots of tattoos, and he was so open to this new expression, even if he didn't understand it. So it's just like, it doesn't matter who you are, you should be able to accept anyone if they have different views than you, right? Yeah. Like, this guy was a big, tough guy, and um, I think he is a bit of a tough guy, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. But he didn't care. It was just another guy. He was just person. a nice, normal guy? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Having an effeminate male friend doesn't take away from his masculinity yeah, exactly. I just wanted to point that out, because... Yeah. Don't need to be a dick about Often it. you see those big, tough guys are yeah. usually the ones that are causing the problem. Yeah. Well, we shouldn't judge people by how they look. Lesson exactly. learned. So when he went back to school in the spring, he would wear women's clothing, accessories, makeup, and high heels. The woman that ran the home also had to teach him how to put on makeup. When he first did it, she said that he looked like a clown. No. <laughs> but I mean, that's just that's anyone like kid, that puts though, on right? makeup for the yeah. first time. Yeah. But she also pointed out that all kids seem to start out their experiments with makeup the same way. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't know, but I can kind of assume. Larry King also had a younger brother that began to get bullied because of his brother's appearance. Because, as we know, kids are horrible. Yeah. Now, this is a school with a uniform policy. So some teachers were not happy with the fact that Larry was wearing what he was wearing. So from the documentary, it also seems that many of the teachers were very homophobic and very religious. At a public school? It seems like a public school. Like, nothing said it was a private school. And I Mm -hmm. think it's more just uh, has mandatory uniforms just to cut down on issues. Hmm. Because, you know, they're gang clothing or, you know, bullying. Not that it helped, but I think that's what it's about. Right. But uh, California had passed anti-discrimination laws that prevent gender discrimination already at this point. So the school was informed that they could not interfere with how Larry dressed. Yep. This would technically break the school's dress code that did not allow students to wear clothes that were deemed distracting. But That's way too vague. Yeah, exactly. A formal email would have to be sent out to the teachers on January 29, 2008 that found this uh, next little bit of text here. 
The school issued a formal notice via email to every teacher on January 29th, 2008, written by 8th grade assistant principal Sue Parsons, that said in part... So I guess it seems like each grade has their own assistant principal at this school. I don't know if that's an American thing. That's so weird, yeah. I guess it depends how big it is. It's like a title. They're just like a liaison. It might be, yeah. So we have a student on campus who has chosen to express his sexuality by wearing makeup. It is his right to do so. Some kids are finding it amusing. Others are bothered by it. As long as it does not cause classroom disruptions, he's within his rights. We're asking that you talk to your students about being civil and non-judgmental. They don't have to like it, but they need to give him his space. We're also asking you to watch for possible problems. If you wish to talk further about this, please see me or Joy Epstein. So yeah. They're trying to deal with it. Yep. Trying-ish. I mean, I like that they included that the teachers need to talk to the students that have a problem with it. Yeah. It's not, because it's not his problem. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. wear what you want to wear, as long as you're within the uniform. The uniform policy can't say, these articles of clothing for boys, yeah. these articles of clothing for girls. They're often a shirt, a pants, or a skirt, or whatever, mm-hmm. and that's about it, right? Mm-hmm. So remember when I said that the school had some homophobia issues? Many of the teachers would accuse Joy Epstein, one of the assistant principals, of encouraging Larry's flamboyance as part of a political agenda, and his adoptive father would agree with this stance, even though Larry had been removed from his care already. Okay, well, you're an asshole, so... Yeah. Not everyone has an agenda. Like, just let the kid be a kid. Yeah, Yeah. but unfortunately, some people think everything is a friggin' agenda these days. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, those people are what I call idiots. Yeah. But like I said, Larry King was a confident kid, and he liked to have some fun with his fellow classmates. And he was known to flirt with the boys in the halls with comments like, I know you want me. And he may have made comments while the boys were changing for gym class. In short, he was being a kid and just talking like kids do, you know? Just being a little, little bratty sometimes, but just being a kid, right? Uh, Larry had only been in the group home for four and a half months at this point, but he was happier, more confident, and his friends spoke of him always smiling and even saying he loved to sing. So his life was getting good for him. In the last few weeks leading up to the date of his murder, he had decided he wanted to be known by a new name. He was a half-black child, and because of this, he wanted to pick his new name in a specific way, and it would change all the time. All of his alter egos would start with uh, La... But he would later settle on Letitia King. Okay. So I think it was like Latoya was one of them. And LaFonda. Just feeling yeah. it out. Yeah, he was just trying to see what, right? what they liked. Yeah. yeah. One of his teachers would be very supportive of his transition and would give him a dress that her daughter wore on her homecoming. He would rush to the washroom to try it on and loved it. He was known as Letitia for 10 days before the incident and 12 days before his death. I will now try to refer to Letitia as they, as they seem to, that seems to be the correct mm-hmm. pronoun. It just seemed to be where Letitia was going mm-hmm. and didn't have a chance to fully get really there. fully get there. So yep. I'm going to try. It might not be right, but it seems like it's the right thing. Right. Because right now you're having to make an assumption that that's what they wanted mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they didn't get a chance to confirm that. Yeah. Yeah. And they were just a friggin' child just trying to figure out themselves. Yeah. Just a little bit more about Letitia. Letitia would crochet scarves for military members in the Middle East. They also crocheted a mouse for one of their teachers for their cat. That's cute. Cute. So this was a good kid that had a tough start to life. 
but was finally fitting in and making great friends. I was like, I feel like that's going to be followed with that. And then... Yeah. Child that was so fucking brave, brave beyond anything I could have been at that age. On February 9th or 10th, 2008, it was the school's Valentine's basketball game. This game day... What the heck does that mean? Well, they they played with pink. No, the ball is in the shape of a heart. Wow, that's tricky. Mm -hmm. I'll explain. That'll go all over the place. (laughs) This game day, everyone would find their Valentine and ask them to be their Valentine. Unfortunately for Letitia, they had a crush on the wrong boy. Letitia walked out onto the court in the middle of the basketball game and asked Brandon McLarney to be their Valentine. This was in front of all the team members and the whole crowd. That would take some guts. Yeah. Like, and just, also, why are you walking and interrupting in the middle of a game? Yeah. I'd be like, could you There's not? Probably, probably a stoppage or whatever, but, you know, mm-hmm. the game was on. Basketball's easy because you could literally just run out onto the court. There's nothing blocking you, right? Oh, yeah. I thought you were saying basketball is easy. And I'm no, like, no, 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 no. No. no it's, easy, it's easy to be bad at basketball. <laughs> it's easy are to be bad at a lot of things. Or? Yes. Okay. Yes, yeah. yeah. Okay. Of course, kids are horrible, and they would make fun of Brandon because of this proposition. On February 11th, Letitia would walk past Brandon in the hallway and call out, Love you, baby. And later in the day... She's so saucy. Yeah. Later in the day, Letitia was seen catwalking down the halls past Brandon in their heels and makeup. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, just being a little bit of a brat, but mm-hmm. just living life. It's interesting, though, because was Brandon interested... I don't know. Because I'm curious to, like, devil's advocate, right? But, like, what if you're not? That is a form of harassment, too. Yeah. It doesn't uh, warrant murder. No, no, no. no. I'm not saying <laughs> yeah, that. I'm not yeah, saying, yeah. oh, she, uh, they had it coming. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, I, I can see how if it's you personally find it not socially acceptable and you're someone's behaving. Like, let's say the roles were reversed and that was a guy talking yeah. to a girl. The girl would definitely be like, don't call me that. Yeah. Like, what, but, is, what is it called? Cat calling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then you just go to an authority yeah. and deal with it. Right. But yeah. Mike, you have this thing called common fucking sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I even did right? though in school. So. Right. Like, well, yes. Well, because you grew up properly raised and all, and all of that. Right. But. That comes into it too. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. There was a group of boys that laughed and poked fun at Brandon for all the attention he was getting. This enraged him. And he tried to get other students together to assault Letitia. No one was willing to do it, so he left it alone for the time being. While Brandon was walking down the halls, though, he saw one of King's female friends, and he would tell them, say goodbye to him, because you'll never see him again. Right. So, logic here, he has none, and he's an idiot. Yeah. This was ominous, but who really expects someone to go through with it, that threat at that age? Yeah, it's just trash talk. Yeah. Yeah. The next day, February 12, 2008, Letitia and Brandon shared a computer lab in the morning. The class lesson that day was on inclusiveness and acceptance and was tied into the story of Anne Frank. During the class, Brandon was seen looking at Letitia King multiple times. Just as a note, the teacher of this lab is the one that gave Letitia the dress. Mm. In and around 8.15 a.m., Brandon would reach into his backpack and pull out a twenty-two caliber revolver. He would train the gun on Letitia and pull the trigger. The first shot would hit them in the back of the head. Wow. It's like execution style. Miss Williams, the teacher, heard a pop but did not know exactly what it was at first and she turned around. Once the shock wore off, 
and she realized he had shot Letitia, and he was still holding the gun. Brandon would aim down at Letitia and shoot them in the back of the head again one more time. Double tap. After this, yeah. After this second shot, he dropped the gun and ran. The school would call the police right away. An announcement was made over the PA system that the high school was on lockdown. I mean, it's the right move. It's terrifying, yep. But this is post-Columbine, and as such, the USA was on high alert. So the police arrived and stormed the school in full tactical, like, full SWAT. Yeah. They wanted to make sure this was not an active shooter situation. Luckily, it wasn't. So, luckily for all, he had fled and was picked up without issue by the cops only blocks away. Letitia King would be rushed to St. John Regional Medical Center and would be listed in critical condition. Following the shooting, the students in the computer lab that lived through the shooting were shuffled into a different room and the police put on a movie to try to keep them calm. Now, what idiot thought it was a good idea to play the movie Jaws for them was either very stupid or very fucking evil. Like, how the fuck? It's about Once a fucking again, shark common killing people. sense. Yeah. You know what's going to make you feel better, sweetheart? Mm-hmm. This movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A movie with more blood. That's what we need here. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. I saw some photos in the Valentine Road HBO documentary mm-hmm. that I wish I didn't see. There was lots of blood. It was awful. On February 13th, Letitia was declared brain dead but was kept on life support for a few days so that the organs could be donated. Okay. I mean, at least something good came out of it. I mean, people got to live because of this, but it's awful. The students that witnessed the murder were obviously very disturbed and distraught about what had happened and begged the school to supply counselors. They refused to supply them, though, which is just so maddening. I mean, but they just they should just hand out copies of Draw to all of them, be like, he'll be fine. No, no, no. Yeah. It, it sounded like it was the police that chose that movie, which is so bizarre. I mean, I just don't understand it. That was the only movie you could find, really? Yeah. Like, it's not going to be in the school library. Like, These are grade 7s, I think it said, right? Grade 7s, yeah. grade 8s. Like, it's not a movie for them. That's so weird. Miss Williams, the one teacher that was very supportive of Larry, then Letitia King, was then let go after the killing and they even went as far as making her recommend- recommendation letter so horrible that she would not find a new teaching job. That's fucking bullshit. Yeah. What, is, what does she have to do with anything? I guess they, not- tried, they tried to blame... Like, like I said, this, the teachers that they talked to in the documentary were so homophobic. The And it's amazing because it's California. You'd think it'd be better than that. But I think they just wanted to get rid of her because she was not like the rest of them. No, I mean, like, as a rhetorical question, like, so she's the one who gave the dress, but it's by no means had she anything to do with anything. Mm -hmm. Awful. I think they just wanted to find a way to get rid of her, because she just did not fit in with how the rest of them thought. It's awful. Stupid. I hate people. Yeah, and, like, she seemed like a, like, she was prominent in this documentary, and she seemed like a really nice woman. And unfortunately, she, at the time they recorded it, she now works at Starbucks because she can't get a job. What's this documentary called? Valentine Road. Is it on Netflix? Uh, it's Prime. HBO. So oh, it's on, uh, in Canada, it's on Crave. The response to the murder was large and was comprised of vigils and marches all over the United States. Big names would get involved in expressing their con- uh, condolences, including human rights campaign president Judy Shepard, Senator Hillary Clinton, and Ellen DeGeneres. Great show for you, and we're going to have a whole lot of fun. Uh, but for a minute, I need to talk to you about something that's really serious and really sad. 
And uh, if you know me, it's hard to talk about sad stuff without getting emotional, but this is really important to talk about. On February 12th, an openly gay 15-year-old boy named Larry, who was an eighth grader in Oxnard, California, was murdered by a fellow eighth grader named Brandon. Larry was killed because he was gay. Days before he was murdered, Larry asked his killer to be his valentine. I don't want to be political. This is not political. I'm not a political person, but this is personal to me. A boy has been killed, and a number of lives have been ruined. And somewhere along the line, the killer, Brandon, got the message that it's so threatening and so awful and so horrific that Larry would want to be his valentine that killing Larry seemed to be the right thing to do. And when the message out there is so horrible that to be gay, you can get killed for it, we need to change the message. Larry was not a second-class citizen. I am not a second-class citizen. It is okay if you're gay. I don't care what people say. I don't care what people think. And I know there are entire groups of people who face discrimination every single day, and we're a long way from treating each other equally. All of it is unacceptable. All of it. But I would like you to start paying attention to how often being gay is a punchline of a monologue or how often gay jokes are in a movie. And that kind of message, laughing at someone because they're gay, is just the beginning. It starts with laughing at someone, then it's verbal abuse, then it's physical abuse, and then it's this kid, Brandon, killing a kid like Larry. We must change our country, and we can do it. We can do it with our behavior. We can do it with our messages that we send our children. We can do it with our vote. This is an election year, and there's a lot of talk about change. I think one thing we should change is hate. Check on who you're voting for, and does that person really, truly believe that we are all equal under the law? And if you're not sure, change your vote. We deserve better. My heart goes out to everybody involved in this horrible, horrible incident. The whole, all the families and this poor... Even, you know, Brandon's life has changed because he did this. So we're going to put more information on this uh, on our website. In the Huneem School District, where EO Green School is located, a thousand students marched past the school to give tribute to Letitia King on February 16, 2008. One of the teachers was recorded for the Valentine Road documentary asking who was behind this march and was disgusted by it. She is very homophobic, though, and I'm disgusted that she is a teacher. People that bigoted should not be teaching the youth. They just shouldn't. Or they just should stay at home all the time. Well, I agree with that, yeah. Yep. From this tragedy, a new bill was introduced that would make a diversity education mandatory in California. Mike Eng was quoted as saying, We need to teach young people that there's a curriculum called tolerance education that should be in schools everywhere. We should teach young people that diversity is not something to be assaulted. But diversity is something that needs to be embraced because diversity makes California the great state that it is. This bill was uh, mandatory and requires classes to be taught on diversity and tolerance in the state of California to Good. this day. Good. It's kind of shitty mm. that they had to make a bill to just be nice people. But yeah. whatever. If it works, it works. Yeah. Yeah. But it'll force the teachers to, even if they've got the wrong thought patterns, well, maybe it'll, it will right. change the minds of those people with those thought patterns that maybe teaching isn't for them. I hope so. Right? So. The year after Letitia King's death, locals held a vigil, a vigil to honor their death. The Day in Silence for 2008 was dedicated to Letitia King. 
For those that do not know, the Day of Silence is a protest about LGBT harassment, and it occurred on April 25th. Some teachers would victim blame Letitia, saying that they were bullying Brandon, but that is just garbage from bigots. You know, he might have been, you know, bugging him and stuff, but there's no reason to murder. Like, that's, you go to the friggin' principal for that. Yeah, like if, like you were saying, Nina, if that was a a guy who did the same thing to a female classmate and she shot him twice in the back of the head, that would be okay? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so. No. No. So, here's a word from the other Larry King of Larry King Live. Larry King and I share more in common than just our names. We both believe that all students should be free to be themselves without the fear of name-calling, bullying, or harassment. Hundreds of thousands of students will take a vow of silence on April 25th as part of the 12th annual National Day of Silence. They'll honor the memory of 15-year-old Larry King and the countless other students who've had their voices taken from them simply because of their sexual orientation or gender expression. Kind of nice to hear someone of that generation speak so openly. eloquently and openly about that. Because, unfortunately, the older generation is usually the one that is not open. Yeah. I mean, not always, of course. No, There's no, no. people our age it's who percentage. are closed-minded yeah. pieces of crap. But, mm-hmm. Yes. And breeding. Yeah. Pre-trial proceedings would begin in February, where they would try and have the location for the trial moved. Then on July 24th, 2008, it was determined by Judge Douglas Daly that Brandon would stand trial as an adult. As he should. Mm -hmm. Of course, the defense would appeal this decision. On August 7th, uh, would see Brandon plead not guilty to premeditated murder and a hate crime. How is it not premeditated? You told someone beforehand that it was going to happen. You packed that gun in your bag. You brought it to school. That's premeditation. And you double tapped, like, this is full intent to go and kill and, like, it, get rid of, eradicate, eradicate, yeah. eradicate, what's the word I'm looking for? Eradicate? Uh, eradicate. Eradicate. Thank you. They would schedule a hearing on September 23rd, 2008, but it would be moved to October 14th of the year. Brandon's family fought the court to have his lawyer changed in September as the United Defense Group wanted to take on his case. There was quite a bit of back and forth, but they would end up conceding and allowing them to take on the case. They did ask that the former lawyer be gagged from speaking, and that motion was denied. (laughs) So they were worried that they were going to talk bad about this case, and they wanted to keep him quiet. Yeah. December 8th, 2008, saw the end of Brandon's evaluation by psychiatrists and psychologists, and it was deemed that he was competent to stand trial. The preliminary hearing would again be postponed until March 17th, 2009. You know, keep holding it off, keep holding it off, and hoping nothing will happen. Another postponement would happen on March 18th, but this time for a much different reason, unfortunately. Brandon's father had been found dead from head injuries sustained while falling drunk. Bunch of winners. Yeah. The judge allowed Brandon to be temporarily released from juvenile detention so that he could attend his father's funeral. On August 27th, 2009, he would be arraigned in Ventura County Superior Court, where he would again plead not guilty to all charges. A trial date would finally be set for December 1st, 2009. Before that could even happen, though, on September 1st, the court judge, Kevin Denos, would add a new lying-in-wait charge to the list. 
This new charge meant that the case would automatically have to be tried in adult court no matter what. Good. The defense fought this new charge, but would be denied the request to overturn it. I've never heard of that. Neither did I, yeah. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, this trial would be postponed for differing reasons that were all concocted. On May 5th, 2011, the court would ensure that Larry Letitia King's juvenile records would be sealed. Because, I mean, the the charge against them was bullshit anyways, right? Yeah, yeah. It just sounds so dirty to try and make the victim sound bad. After so many holdups, the trial would finally begin on July 5th, 2011, and they would finally be able to get the trial moved as it was moved to Los Angeles. Uh, so this is the, now we're going to finally get to the first trial. That's first trial. Mm. Four years later. On the first day of the trial, Brandon's half-brother, James Bing, would get himself barred from the courtroom. He was observed talking to the jury outside of the courtroom before the trial started. He was heard saying, the fate of my brother is in your hands. What an idiot. Yeah. The only way he'd be permitted into the court was if he was actually called to testify. So this following is taken right from Wikipedia. The prosecutors depicted Brandon as a popular teenager who was skilled in martial arts and firing guns, as well as being a white supremacist. (laughs) He went on to describe King as a small guy who had often been picked on, saying that King wore high heel boots, makeup, jewelry, along with his high school uniform. Scott Whippert, Brandon's attorney, described King as the aggressor, saying he often was sexually aggressive and often made inappropriate remarks, provoking Brandon. Witnesses who were students and classmates of Brandon testified on July 7th, 2011. One witness said King told her that he had changed his name to Letitia. Another witness said many students made fun of King, calling him offensive names behind his back when he came to school just wearing makeup and jewelry. A few of the witnesses said that they never noticed King making sexual advances towards other students, but that sexual comments were made just to mess with Brandon. The former vice principal of EO Green School, Joy Epstein, testified on July 11th, 2011. She said she had discussed King's behavior with other school officials of the school district, and they decided it was, according to the constitutional rights of California, legitimate for King to wear what he wanted unless it violated the school's dress code. Joy Epstein said high heel boots, makeup, and jewelry were all allowed under the Oxnard School District dress policy. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can you stop it, right? Right. If the... The girls in class can wear it, then anyone can. She said another administrator within the district said that the school must protect the student civil and equal rights. Another teacher testified that pupils had told her King would seek them out and follow them into the bathroom, behavior she considered to be sexual harassment. That's true, it probably is, but... It didn't come up at all before the trial, yeah. Yeah, that's mysterious. But also, like... If we look at it, at the end of the day, someone came to school, brought a gun with the intent to kill someone, and they killed that person. Mm -hmm. I feel like all of this, what she was or he was wearing, she was wearing, completely doesn't, it's not a thing. I I wanted to add it just to show you how so much shit was thrown around. That's the thing. It's just like, how is that relevant? Like, case in point, if we just look at this isolated day, this is what happened. Exactly. Yep. All right, so this is back to the story now. Brandon was not handling Ventura County Juvenile Hall very well, as he was always fighting, and these videos would be shown to the jury on July 22, 2011. One corrections officer would testify that he was a good kid, though, and in the honors program for good behavior. 
Like, how could he be when there's video after video of him provoking attacks? Yeah, it's confusing for sure. So this seems to fly in the face of the vicious attacks that were shown on the HBO documentary. They showed him, like, lying in wait and then jumping out the sprint up and start wailing on unsuspecting inmates. Like, just vicious attacks. Great King would end up getting himself barred from the trial also because he blamed the school for allowing Letitia to wear the girl's clothing. Unfortunately, this trial would end on September 1st, 2011 in a mistrial as the jury were deadlocked and could not come to a unanimous verdict. I hate the unanimous verdict thing. How are you freaking deadlocked on this? Yeah. Did, did a crime happen? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is well, there a guilty party? Or not guilty. Is there yeah. someone who pulled a trigger? Yeah. Yes. So the jury had gone to vote uh, to four votes, and in the end, the last vote would be split between seven jurors voting for voluntary manslaughter and five others voting for either first or secondary murder, and they could not decide which. Mm. Uh, I don't understand how this is not first degree murder. Yeah, the defense had used the despicable gay panic defense strategy during the trial. I'm happy that this would not end the story, though, as another trial would begin soon. Only a day after this failed trial, the district attorney would announce they intended to retry Brandon. For the second trial, the hate crime charge would be removed from the list, though. So on November 21st, 2011, we would see Brandon plead guilty to second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter, and the use of a firearm. Because of this plea, he was sentenced 21 years in prison on December 19th. The plea deal would take a life in prison off the table. The sentence would be served in juvenile facility until his 18th birthday, where he would then be moved to an adult prison. That's a very light sentence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He would also get absolutely no credit for time he had already served in juvenile detention before the trials. Well, I like that. Yeah. All right. To finish off the story, I'll give some information on Brandon. He was born on January 24th, 1994 in Ventura, California. His mother, Kendra, was a methamphetamine addict and had a criminal history. His mother would claim that in 1993, his father, William, shot her in the arm with a 45 caliber handgun. She would also claim at a much later date that he was stealing Brandon's other older brother's ADHD medication at the same time she reported him choking her almost to unconsciousness. Wow. To this, he would plead no contest, but as sick as the legal system is, he would only serve 10 days in jail for domestic abuse. I hate that. He would get another 36 months of probation, though, but abusers on probation can still go back and abuse. Yeah. Where are you serving your probation? Oh, at home. Didn't say, but probably at home. With the person that accused you. But why is she there also? Like, leave this situation. That's... I mean, it's easier said than done, right? I mean, if she had enough in her to go to jail to, like, have him actually go through the court to get yeah. sentenced and all of that, I would feel like is that is not like I think the more you learn about her, I don't think she was all there. You'll see. Okay. Of course, on the outside looking in, everyone thought that their father was a nice guy. Like so often happens in these cases, right? The older brother would state that his mother was living like a zombie with her drug addiction and he moved out at seventeen years old. So she's just she's not there. Mm-hmm. But then he did also state that they were more or less homeless at the time anyways, so it was not a big stretch to leave. Between the uh, time of August 2000 and February 2001, Brandon's father would contact Child Protective Services to talk of concerns he had with his son's living conditions. 
There was at least five separate reports on this. Brandon would end up leaving his mother's care in 2004 and move in with his father, Billy or William, and his grandfather. So the a domestic abuser. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, that he was concerned about their living conditions with the mum. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's kind of backwards, right? Like, Well, you know. I, I don't think either of them were good. He should have been in another protective care somewhere else. Yeah. This was a failure, though, as there was more talk of abuse here, but there was also talk about access to a lot of guns. It was not hard for Brandon to get a weapon for this crime. Along with abuse at the household, there was a lot of drug use and very open drug use. Brandon also liked to doodle in a notebook, like so many children, but unfortunately his notebook was full of Nazi symbolism and almost direct copies from SS notebooks that no teen would usually have in their possession. Brandon was not a good person, and he deserves to spend all 21 years behind bars. But i also like to point out that at no point did his parents act like parents. They were addicts and bad people, and it is hard for children to grow up with good morals and the understanding that being different is okay. So really, when it comes down to it, two children's lives were destroyed in this case. Yeah. One right from birth, basically. Right. That's my case. Well, I hate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean... Watching the watching the documentary and reading about about it between yeah about it, you just kind of you get to like Larry Letitia King like he just they were just kind of a fun person especially once they moved to the group home yeah and we're just kind of opening Started up being yeah. Happy. yeah exactly like just you listen to the friends talk about them and but it's like yeah Brandon was also just set up from failure from the beginning right oh like yeah yeah, yeah his yeah. history about his with his parents and obviously the topic of gun control and all of that I don't know. At, at one point, I wasn't even really going to talk about Brandon that much. But then the more and more I heard about his family, I'm just like, no, nah, I, I kind of have to point out. Like, I mean, he's still a POS and what he did, yeah, yeah. right? But the kid was set up for failure from birth. He didn't have a chance. Yeah, I yeah, know. I looked up um, the pictures. pictures. Yeah. They look so young. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I've got some pictures here that I'll have on the website. Too. Oh, yeah, for sure. I just um, I was literally oh, no, I don't have them here. They're so young. Yeah. So yeah, that's my case. Cool. Hey, this is Mike from Brew Crime. Let's take a short break from our Valentine's Day crimes to talk about a different crime. The crime of neglect. Ladies and gentlemen, or non-binary folks, do you have a ball sack in your life that you adore? Well, for this Valentine's Day, why not get that special set of gonads, a ballsy gift set. Their nuts about your sack pack is bursting with goodness. It all starts with a good ball wash. This is made with activated charcoal and is packed with essential oils and plant extracts and is good from your tip to your tush. The next product is the Nut Rub, because before you get frisky, you need to put on a good cologne. This bad boy comes in six fragrances for all your partner's desires. To round this all out, there is the Sack Spray. Keep the pH balanced and deodorize your crown jewels for that unplanned shag. If you head to ballwash.com right now and use the promo code BREW20, you can get 20% off your own I'm Nuts About You gift set valued at $45. So make your Valentine's shopping easy by pampering their balls. That's promo code BREW20 at ballwash.com. This episode is sponsored by ballwash.com. So the case that I picked for our Valentine's Day themed episode actually happened right on Valentine's Day in 1971. It's about a couple who was murdered obviously and the killer's still at large oh shit uh for the beer that i chose i'm going to start off with simply saying i didn't choose it 
I went to the liquor store and I tried to explain what I needed a beer for and the shopkeep literally just stared at me. She's like, I think I have something that's woods related. And she brought this <laughs> beer out because there's pictures of woods on it. It's called uh, Tree Brewing. Com- oh, sorry. It's made by Tree Brewing uh, Company, who's originally from Kelowna, BC. The beer itself is called Cutthroat, and it's a West Coast ale. Uh, 5% alcohol. I don't know. I think the can is pretty, and it's got woods on it. Yes, the woods, it the woods part will make sense when I get more into my story, but I'm gonna let Beck open this so that I don't break a nail, and then <laughs> Mike can talk about the beer. It's got a sort of a deep coppery color, off white head, kind of a fruity nose, grainy, kind of a little bit of sweetness, maybe a little floral, got kind of a lemony sweetness, for a little tiny hint of pith, pith or resin, but not really, uh, a little bit of graininess. Almost no bitterness. I don't know if it usually is bitter. I can't remember, but it. I'm surprised it's so low in bitterness. It's high in burpiness, though. The last beer was, too. It's not bad. It's nothing exceptional, but it's not a bad beer. Beck, what'd you think of it? Mm. Not a big fan. Are you being the Nino right now? No, I don't it's... mind this beer. I th- Yeah, it's what you said. It's not nothing exceptional. Nothing exceptional, but yeah, it's okay. I can easily drink the can. And another one. Which is what you're doing right now. Yes. So while you guys get crunk up in here, I'm going to go into my episode. Oh, I keep calling it my episode. Yeah. I'm going to go into pants. my story. Not wasty oh, pants. <laughs> um, okay. So obviously, as I said, it happened on February 14th, 1971. 19-year-old Jesse McBain of Pittsburgh picked up his girlfriend, Patricia Mann. Uh, the couple headed to Valentine's Day dance at Watts Hospital in Durham. After the dance, McBain, who's a student at um, NC State University, and Mann, a 20-year-old nursing student at the Watts Hospital, walked back to her dormitory, and she signed out, noting that she would be back by the 1 a.m. curfew. The next morning, her roommates actually started looking for her because she hadn't come home. One of them found her locked car parked on Lover's Lane near Hilldale Golf Course. The roommates, uh, there was a couple of the girls, they called Durham Police Department right away to report them as missing because this was so out of character. Um, However, the police weren't really eager to start looking for them yet because it had only been a couple of hours. The couple's families were notified that morning that they were missing, and according to Mann's cousin, Carolyn Spivy, might be pronouncing the last name wrong, but it's spelled S-P-I-V-E-Y, Spivey, Spivey, who grew up next door to her in Sanford. She, and I quote, immediately knew that something was wrong. And I quote, I just got the sickest feeling in my stomach that something terrible had happened. She was a good girl. She went by the rules. Interesting. Yep. It's kind of interesting to you looking at that because sometimes they're like, oh, you know, boy, girl, they're gone. You know, roommates, maybe not as attentive because, you know, we know he was with him. They're at the dance, whatever. But right away, they're like, nope, super out of character. Where are they? Mm-hmm. On February 25th, so about two weeks later, there's a guy who was working in the woods um, by Northwest Durham. And he saw what he thought looked like mannequins in the forest. It's not a mannequin. Mm-hmm. It. Correct. It was not mannequin. When he, he took a closer look, he realized it was actually the leg of a woman, and she was lying uh, dead next to a young man. The bodies were covered in leaves, 
Um, later that day, they were officially identified as Mann and McBain. Their hands had been tied with thick ropes behind their backs to a tree, and ropes were stretched tight and knotted around their necks. Although still tied to the tree, their upper bodies had slumped over so that they laid side by side next to each other in the woods. At the medical examiner's office, they discovered McBain and Mann had several strangle marks on their necks. So as though the rope had been tightened, then loosened, then tightened again, aka they were tortured. Tim Horn, who I'll kind of talk a lot about because he, I think this is one of those instances where an investigator has like a lifelong case that they're, like a cold case, I guess. Yeah, like something they just can't let go of. Mm. Yeah, so um, he was the lead investigator for Orange County Sheriffs. Obviously from the tightening and the loosening and the different strangle marks, he was the one who first off said, yeah, must have been tortured. Mm Mm-hmm. Locally became known as the Valentine's Day murder. It was a real big hit on TV, newspapers, and radio, and in detective magazines even. Because the bodies were found in Orange County, but their likely kidnapping occurred in Durham, the Orange and Durham County Sheriff's offices and the Durham Police Department and the State Bureau of Investigation all worked together on the case, trying to identify and check out possible suspects. Something that I'd found when kind of searching through this is that there's really obviously because this was back in um, 1971, they didn't have as good communication between all of the offices. No. So it really looked like that bits and pieces were here or there and didn't really all come, come well together. So there were a few that did not cooperate, that would not take polygraph, but the vast majority did, Horn said about the suspects. Some were just formalities because they weren't that great of a suspect in the first place. Officially, no one was actually considered an official suspect, in the first years surrounding, um, or sorry, pers- uh, after the crime had occurred. Jeez. Mann's and McBain's family and friends never forgot. From everything I'd seen is basically their entire life, they're going to try to figure out who this is, and they were really, really close-knit. Yeah. Mann's extended family all lived on the same street in Sanford, plus Carolyn, which is the cousin I mentioned earlier, was dating and later married McBain's best friend. So very tight-knit, and obviously yeah, all huge trauma that they had experienced together i don't think many families let it go right no if there's no one behind bars they're gonna search forever mm-hmm. well and i think it's something so bizarre because what well, i'll get into it too right but like why why them right yeah. like they're literally kids 19 and 20 20 years old right so uh people constantly called them with rumors and tips or to ask about the case carolyn spivey had said Each time, it ended up, according to her, opening old wounds, and the nightmares would return. Carolyn was contacted, and this person said, from what my understanding is, anonymous, but they had mentioned who someone who they thought was a suspect. So this was four years after the incident. She then contacted Horn, and he asked his other investigator buddy, Don Hunter, to start digging through old boxes of records of evidence. Hmm. Yeah. So they ended up spending another four years investigating all the different twists and turns. And they uh, rechecked all the original suspects that they had looked at. They looked at these new ones, potentially. And Horn ended up calling all the original investigators who were still alive at the time and asking them to come to the sheriff's office. At least they were going through all the evidence again for years. Like, it's not like they just gave up. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Some of the information was new to individual investigators because the different agencies investigating back in 1970 hadn't always shared their information with each other. I hate that. Mm-hmm. 
like but i think that's how some sometimes killers also get away right like i think i mean obviously i'm sure we've all heard of ted bundy right like it was mm -hmm. a lot of different counties states not communicating so you don't realize that the same type of crime is happening mm -hmm. i mean it could still happen today some police forces are very open with their information and some aren't mm -hmm. but at least like there's the database of like who's in jail and like crime like that that is a nationwide database yeah. so yeah. at least that gives you something right like if there's a jane doe you can at least look up oh well there's another you know white white female blah, 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 whatever the but only is. if it's actually put into the system that's correct and who knows how far behind there with that so I think something with the case that they found really interesting is sometimes you always look for motive, which I know I kind of touched on being that they were 19 and 20, so young. They were both fully clothed. They had all their property on them, jewelry, rings, wallets, all of that. They weren't robbed. So that definitely wasn't the motive. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were bound individually around their neck and hands, like I had mentioned, adding to the torture factor. But also apparently there was no sexual assault on either of them either. So... Do you literally just pick two random people, torture them, and murder them? Yeah. That doesn't sound... Yeah, it sounds weird. To me, like a... It sounds like a planned murder, right? Like, not... I don't know. What do you get out of that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what anyone gets out of murdering someone, but for something like this where you're not taking... You know, the car was left there. Obviously, the car keys would have been on. Like, nothing. Mm -hmm. Everything was still there, which I think makes it even, even more bizarre, potentially. Investigators were able to get their hands on a MVAC... Uh, so this is a machine that can extract DNA from complicated places. Apparently, there's only 40 available nationwide. Wow. Deputies had to use one at the Guilford County Sheriff's Office. What they had done is the all the evidence in this case, unlike some other cases that we've talked about, had been perfectly preserved. So there is actually DNA evidence in the rope that does not match either of the two victims. However, can't find any suspects. Still, still nothing, which sucks. Yeah, that's yeah. horrible. There were a number of different knots that were tied around the victims, and those have been preserved. Although they were still tied to the trunk, their upper bodies had slumped over so that they laid side by side in the leaves. At the medical examiner's office, and I touched earlier on this, it was discovered that McBain and Mann both had several distinct strangle marks on their necks, as though the rope was, as I said, tightened and loosened and then tightened again. And adding to this motive, or I guess part of the crime, why were they tortured? Um, they suffered nearly identical injuries, although Mayan was found to also have a half-inch tear to her liver. They're assuming that this was caused by a strong blow to the stomach prior to the death. Um. So they're like beating them, kicking them also. Mm. One or two people who were suspected back in the early 1970s were still considered good suspects. Uh, one of them is still alive. Hmm. He was affiliated with the Watts Hospital at the time of the murder. Horn considers him still one of the true suspects. Something that I couldn't figure out when doing the research is why he was a suspect. His name, I couldn't find what was released. Mm -hmm. And the only tie I get is that he had something to do with the hospital where the dance was where she was a nursing student at. Weird. Um, it was interesting. Horn had also said that this man who's... And anything I found was just referred to as like the suspect. They asked him to come do a lie detector test. He refused. He then called his lawyer, who also said refusing not doing the lie detector test. What I'm just confused with is, and I don't know, maybe you guys know, but can't they subpoena him to do it? Like force him to do a lie detector test? Like to, 
I guess it's not even worth it because lie detector tests aren't allowed in court anyways. Yeah. But it's just like, isn't that super duper suspicious? Like, why won't you just do it? Well, they but they'd have to find a judge who found reasonable cause to force him to do it. And Mm -hmm. then even if they did, it's inadmissible in court. So what's the point? Yeah. Unless this is a long time ago. I don't know. Because it was for a while. Yeah. But I don't know. I think to me, like, if you had nothing to do with it, just go to clear your name, right? Like, imagine that you don't have anything to do with it. And, you know, four, four years go by, eight years go by, 10 years go by. People still consider you a suspect. Wouldn't you just want to clear your name so that you're out of that narrative? I guess, but with how unreliable they are, it could just be, make matters worse for you. Mm-hmm. If you're like a a, no, a nervous person naturally, yeah, then enough. it's going to look like you're lying. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There's just kind of like no happy ending in that, right? Mm-hmm. No. Horn also, just to quote him directly again, that clearly we don't have enough evidence for prosecution in court, but DNA is an ace in this card game. And if it comes back in our favor, it'd be very hard for that person of interest for his DNA not to be on it. So I don't know that this ever will be solved, right? Like it's what now been, that was in the seventies. What, how many years is that? 30? Since the seventies? 40? 50? 50. Right. So this person could very well not even be alive anymore, Mm -hmm. right? So if their DNA isn't in the system now, probably we'll we'll never really know what happened. No. Mm -hmm. The family was kind of noted saying that they're at least happy that there is DNA that if something comes up, cause at least it's not a complete dead end. Yeah. Um, but I don't necessarily know that they're able to feel like true satisfaction. They might so, be able to do it against like a ge- genealogy thing or something Yeah. and find someone who's related to them and then work back from there, which is, which has been happening. Although there's a lot of people fighting that legally too. Well, yeah. What was the, uh, the serial killer that was just caught Golden State, Golden State Killer, State killer. State, yeah, that right? was the big one that yeah. everyone was hearing about there's been more since yeah yeah. but essentially their most recent development on this case it was from 2010 that they've made and I couldn't find out what the progress was but significant progress eventually narrowing in on one main suspect who was a former Durham doctor who worked at the Watts, uh, Watts Hospital uh, so this person's still alive but from what I found, I wasn't able to figure out if he was the same guy that we talked about earlier. Right. So I don't know. And still didn't get his name. So, yeah, unsolved case. Two, two lovers, Valentine's Day dance. Uh, their last dance, unfortunately. If you're kind of interested in the case, while um, doing their research, I came across a podcast. Um, it's not actually a big podcast, but they made a podcast specifically focusing on just the events that happened uh, with this case and essentially just did a major deep dive. I think there was six or eight episodes, something like that, all mm-hmm. dedicated to it. Uh, the podcast called The Long Dance. Yeah, I definitely recommend to check it out. Definitely goes into way more, way more depth with everything. But yeah, still unsolved and still, I don't know. I don't know that it'll be solved. So yeah. Unfortunately, probably not, but at least they're still looking. Yeah. Yeah, but it, you know, I hope it's not one of those cases that just like, uh, dies with the people who are involved. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, no, I yeah. As a family starts, generations, you know. Yeah. And then obviously Horn, from everything that I've seen, has been super competent and trying to trying to figure it out. Just doesn't seem to be successful yet, right? Yeah. So, who knows? But yeah, that's my story. Thanks for tuning in. You can find us at all your favorite podcast apps. You can 
Go to brewcrime.com and check out our show notes and all our sources. You can email us at brewcrime at pacificbeerchat.com if you want to suggest cases or themes. And thanks to our Patreon supporters. Through Patreon, we help upgrade our equipment and try to make the show better. So go to patreon.com slash brewcrime. Thanks to our supporters, 3 Beers In Podcast, Amber, Ange, Daniela, Nina's Mom, the Faves of Life Podcast, True Crime and Wine Time, and True Crime Nana. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm. Cheers. Bye. Brew Crime's intro was created by Mike using Creative Commons Attribution Licensed Audio from purple-planet.com, soundbible.com, and freesoundeffects.com. Logo design was by Ben Greenberg. All cases and stories were written by Beck, Nina, and Mike, and our sources are put into the show notes for each episode. We always want to give credit to the people that research the cases we talk about. Check out our store at brewcrime.threadless.com where you can purchase swag like t-shirts, phone cases, beach towels, and all kinds of cool stuff. We can also be found on your favorite podcast apps, our hosts, Spreaker.com or Brewcrime.com, as well as at Brewcrime on Twitter, at Brewcrime on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash groups slash Brewcrime. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Pacific Beer Chat. After my first few episodes, some of my newfound fans called me a lore master, which was an honor and so epically cool. But the thing is, I desire to be known as THE Lore Master. So, this is the tale of the rise of an epic podcast that critics say is redefining a genre. The tale of a man who decided that his calling in life was to give a future to the past. The saga of Arjun, your Lore Master. Come dream with me as we go deep into our stories. If you think you've been taken to a battlefield before, I assure you, you're mistaken. So take a deep breath, let it out slowly, put some smoke in the air if you choose, and prepare to let your mind flow to my voice as we go deep. Welcome to Deep Into History, available everywhere. Do you have a true crime obsession like me? Have you ever listened to true crime podcasts and wondered why there is no voice for South African victims? Well, that voice is here. True Crime South Africa covers solved and unsolved South African true crime cases. Each episode is a deep dive, not only into the mechanics of the case, but more importantly, into the victim's story and who they were as human beings. True Crime South Africa is available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Our content is waiting to be discovered by you. Do this! Okay. I really, I literally pressed play as you yelled that. Or uh, record as you yelled that. Perfect. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Ready. Okay. <coughs> Nina's dying. Get back. Cut scene. Go. <laughs> well, that might be the worst pour I've ever done for myself. Just gave yourself lots of head. Very. Can I see the can? I like this can. It was a nice can. Ooh, nice can. I'm gotta. You just practice I'm going this. to do this. Just spell it phonetically, <clears throat> so that I don't. Yeah, I don't care for that. <laughs> Sorry, it's good, but it's just so, so sour. sour. Around America, set in the scene, top stories. Okay. Ba ba ba. Okay, go. I'm ready. Everyone ready? Mm-hmm. Yes, Nina's sir. Ready? Okay. Sir, I don't know. Sorry. Aye, Captain. <laughs>
I'll take that. Sorry, was that loud? Jean-Luc. Aye, aye. Jean-Luc. Can't wait for the new show, Picard. I almost Picard. wore my Team Picard t-shirt today. Yes. Did Jean-Luc. you see the picture of um, uh, yes. him and Ian McKellen, Ian McKellen kissing? kissing? That was yeah. awesome. Did you see that? I saw the picture. I They've been like best it. friends forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll just open one for now. Okay. I mean, take as much as you want. Oh my God, since, it's dark. Yeah. Since Nina is, is going to like it. And we still have like... Ha- this is, this is what like can. liquid Nutella would look like. I hate Nutella. Shut the front door. I really? Know. I love Nutella. I don't. I just finished a jar the other day. I love Nutella, but I don't like it on anything. You well, just like with a spoon. Yeah, and I don't like to have it in the house. Have you had Nutella ice cream? Mm. No. Nutella ice cream is the best. Yeah. This is a very cute, adorable can. I love a nice can. Don't we all? I'm not sure what we're talking about. Bum. God. I'm going to pour some more in my can. Or my cup. Pour more. Pour more in your can. Pour more in my can, yeah. Wow. You want some more? That's okay. Ugh. By the third grade, things could get... or. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I love you. Due to the wrong word. <laughs> Should have been. It's like me, except I'm white. I'm super gangster and oh, tattoos. Yeah. Oh, oh shiza. It's empty. Sorry, I'll start that again. Brandon McLennan. Oh, shoot. Let's. <laughs> That's an L there. McLearney. Ask. Excuse me. Bless you. I think that was a sneeze. It was a burp. Very much burp. Uh, it was a hand fart burp. <laughs> hand fart? Yeah. Sorry, this beer is burpy. Mm-hmm. It burps quite orangey, though. That's going to be cut out for later. Yeah. Nope. Save it. Include it. Well, for later. Live it. <laughs> Breathe it. I don't know how to pronounce this school district name. Quenanem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like the third word. I think I was pretty damn right. Hunin? Hunanem. It's like cinnamon, but without the cinnamon. So for my episode, the case, my episode, this is our episode. episode. My episode, the case that I'm going to stumble through right now, um, actually happened on Valentine's Day. And a quick brief is the case is. (laughs) It's about a pterodactyl. It's about a pterodactyl (laughs) called Amber. She's been released from the wild. Another one? No, she's good. Let's just start that again. Yeah. Uh, do you want to just open one again for now? That's open too. I'm thirsty. <laughs> I'm just concerned that I'm going to be like, That's I okay. don't like it. And then it'll be just you drinking two cans. That's okay. I'm a big boy. He can take to whatever he wants. If he leaves us any. Okay. I think what he meant is to open that because he's drinking all of that. Okay. Have you had this before and Not you love it or time. something? I'm just thirsty. He's parched. His mouth is sweating. Our first episode, we didn't have much beers. The one that made, gave me the goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Really good. Just for sour. Yeah. <clears throat> Fair. Okay. Talk talk beer, bro. Oh, bro. Beer, bro. Be- beer, bro. Yo, Mike's new name. <laughs> beer, bro. BB. <laughs> Big and beautiful beer, bro. BB, BB, BB. Big bearded. <laughs> Big bearded. And she sound. And she sign it. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> she sign up. <clears throat> Detective magazines. Yeah. Jeez. Like I spy, but for detection. <laughs> <coughs> Horn um, was quoted as saying that there was a few. Why is this sentence like that? There were a few. Th- fuck. There were a few that did not. That's a sentence, right? What? 
There were a few that did not. Yeah. Okay, that works. Okay. Short and sweet. Just like me. Just like me? I'm definitely not short. Oh, I said sweet. just like me. Oh. <laughs> when was the 70s? 30 years ago? 40? 50? 50? Right. Good job, Nina. 